When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment. I think the probably the biggest common denominator I've noticed is this just hyper-focus, this ability to meld mind and body together, where a lot of times with the good athletes who are able to win occasionally, they'll find those moments and get into that flow state, but they can't sustain it. Whereas you see the great champions, the Tigers, the Roger Federer, Serena Williams, Lionel Messi, Kent Steffes, they're able to have this level of hyper-focus. And it's not just in Manhattan Beach Opens or the Olympic Games. It's Monday morning practice. It's Tuesday at five in the morning when you have to go to the track or weight room or wherever you're going. They just have this. Sports are specifically designed to put you into an area where you are threatened where there is fear, where there is, you know, you might choke, you might uh, uh, fail, okay? That's why, that's what they're designed to do. So if you look at combat sports, uh, the sports are specifically created to hurt you, to damage you, Uh, collision sports as well. Uh, Sports such as distance running or other sorts of sports are meant to physically exhaust you. It's meant to push you past your pain tolerances. And so, when you start to look at these things, you can wonder why people don't necessarily adopt the winning mindset. It's not easy, it's, it hurts, it's painful, and it's damaging. So again, you need to reframe your experience. Sometimes you just have to cry, like, un- yeah, uncontrollably. But then, you know, you pick yourself up and you uh, go back home and you say, what do I need to do to get better? And I need to get stronger and I need to get faster and I need to uh, watch more tape. And finally, after doing all that, I was able to crack the nut. We were the ones who took down Sinjin Randy from the top spot. You know, you gotta, you gotta knock the number one players off. And that's what we did. And it's not easy. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. My guest today is Olympic gold medalist, beach volleyball player, Kent Steffes, and beach volleyball player, author, podcast host, Travis Merwitter. And this was a really special conversation for me because I love talking about sports, of course, who I love talking about beach volleyball, but it was actually, it's bigger than that. And so regardless of whether you're interested or not in, in beach volleyball or even sports, it's getting an, a small inside look at the brain of someone like Kent Steffes, who are the 1% of the 1%. This is a very intelligent person who happened to be big enough and athletic enough and interested enough in directing some of that energy towards sports. And then two and a half years after he wins the gold medal, he changes and goes to Stanford Business and puts his teeth into something else. But it's also a look at what's the cost of winning. 
both Travis and I, uh, I did play volleyball. Travis is playing volleyball and we're sitting at the same table with Kent and Travis and I probably got there. We were athletic enough, instinctive enough. It was fun for us. And sitting with Kent, it's almost like speaking a different language. This is somebody who will tell you, first of all, yeah, I'm sure he liked playing volleyball, but he was there to win. And he shares very openly that there is a cost for that. And I think that's an important conversation to have because we all spend a lot of time doing things that great things come from it, but there's always a cost. And so whether it's you who wants to participate or maybe you have a kid who's in sport, I think it's an important conversation to have. And regardless of if you're interested in beach volleyball or sports, it's just a look at that mindset of, yeah, I'm doing this to win. And also how strategic and almost mathematical they are. You know, Kent says, all great volleyball players do three things. And I'm sure if you ask the top of every person in every sport, they can tell you their three things in their sport. And every athlete who is successful does these, you know, sort of three or four things. And it's hard, you know, that's the thing for me is there's a lot of life after sport and there's a lot of other things besides winning. And if that even means in your business life and accruing, whether it's titles or money or power, what is the price for that? You know, just looking at what sort of feels better and who wants to pay that price. And I knew Kent briefly. I wouldn't say, you know, Kent was there to be social at the beach. He was there to practice and get something done. So this was really a treat for me to literally, you know, sort of 25 years after sharing a beach with him, get to really get a look behind. And he and Travis have a new book out called Kings of Summer. And it's out. You can order it online. And I hope you enjoy. Kent, Travis, thank you for coming to my house. Um, I, I've seen you in about, a, uh, Travis, I saw you about a year. Uh, how long has it been now? Is it's it probably eight? the winter. Yep. We came okay. up and did so a little eight workout. Months. Yeah, about that. Now, was this book done when was, I saw you or were you guys, were you and Kent still in, working on it? In the process, very much in the process. Yeah. The book really wasn't done, done until really a couple weeks ago. And then once we put the final edit, oh, your on editor it. must have been really excited. Because <laughs> yeah. it's not it's it's out two days ago. It's not available till August, and yet it's sold out in Australia, right? Yeah. Am I catching up? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so how did you and Kent Steffes? I'll just establish it at the top. Uh, how did the two of you meet? Yeah, it's uh, that's kind of a winding, a fun story. That's a good story. Um, so Kent in my mind, is one of the most dominant athletes in the history of sport. And I don't know why you would say that. He's, <laughs> he's won a lot. He's won a lot of tournaments. And so I've wanted yeah. to get in touch with him just as a journalist for a really long time. Mm. Um, but Kent gets hit up for interviews all the time. And so his rule of thumb, which I didn't know until recently, was that I will be the last interview. And so I kept trying to interview him for this book I was working on. And he was like, Either oh, you mean like no. you get to talk to all the athletes first, and if you're doing a project, I have to be the last person you speak to? Right, because no okay. one ever actually finishes these projects. <laughs> It'll either be documentaries or books or whatever. Oh. And so I finally... Well, let me cut in here. So yeah. 
like the 1990s beach volleyball scene was really kind of something special. It's it hit a peak during those times that really we haven't seen since either internationally or in the United States. Uh, it was a time when the sport was rocketing onto the scene and becoming the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of like natural interest in that time period, nostalgia, especially now nostalgia with the 90s. And so I get hit up about five to 10 times a year by people who are like, I want to do a book. I want to do a, a documentary. I want to do a Netflix series. And when I was younger, I take the meeting, but realized they you bite were- bite the hook? Yeah, I was young mm-hmm. and didn't know anything. And so later on, I was kind of like, I would talk to them. I go, look, like I said, uh, I'll be your last interview. Just go around and do anything. And I, some people got fairly far, a quarter of the way, a half of the way, but they usually just flail out. But I realized that when I said that to people, I'll be the last interview, I sounded kind of lame. So I just sort of stopped responding. <laughs> <laughs> Would you just stop responding? Uh, you know, I figured they'd get around to me if they actually ever did. The if thing. they weren't. So, Travis, when you say you wanted to in- interview Kent, I mean, like you said, Kent's body of work in beach volleyball and the first ever Olympics in beach volleyball is, you know, it has its place in history. Mm -hmm. Did you really want to interview him as somebody who's writing or did you want to talk to him as a player? Both. And that's the beauty of what I get to do. And Mm -hmm. that when I write about volleyball, I'm also stealing people's best tricks. And that's why I love doing the podcast with Try because we get to talk to all these phenomenal athletes and mm-hmm. I'm just sitting here taking notes and nobody was ever really worried about me being any good when we started the podcast because I was really terrible. So it was a little bit of both. But when you have someone who's won as much as Kent has, there's just so much you can learn. And that's what's been a blast mm-hmm. working with him on this project is digging into the mindset of someone who won almost 50% of the tournaments he played, which yeah. is an obscene percentage. So it was it was a lot of both. I, I really wanted to pick the mind of someone who won so much and that no one had ever been able to really track him down and interview him. And so I oh, knew you like that, that challenge. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I was like, you're hard to get. That's good. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, no, come on. So no, it's good. It's a good quality. <laughs> so, so actually I go like, he, he kind of got there. I said, look, I'll be your last interview. And he sent the book. He actually completed the book and did the thing. And I said, okay, well, yeah. I'm ready now. And we yeah. had him and Delaney, his wife, over. And actually, we invited Sinjin and Patty. You did? They, yeah, they came over to my house for dinner. Oh, that must have uh, oh, yeah. We had a great time, right? It and, was awesome. So, I, you know, I had written some stuff, and we could maybe talk about that yeah. online during I the have, pandemic. Yeah. And he'd actually... I read it, oh, some of it. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, I'll talk about that. But, like, he actually had called me up and said, hey, can I use some of the stuff you wrote? And I'm like, of course, whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me. But after the dinner, I guess... For some reason, he then contacted me. He goes, "Hey, you want to co-write this book?" Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe that la- that last interview went well. So let's let's just I'm just curious as you somebody who can be inside and an observer because mm-hmm. it's I think so many things from sport and uh, and we'll get into it. And I do appreciate how the book went from chapter to chapter back in the past into the and you know sort of the history of it and then back into the game itself and the '96 Olympics is what traits do you see commonly that kind of all the champions uh, or what people call champions? I have I have since broadened my definition of champion, right? Like there's winning and then there's sort of this other level of champion who's trying to actually do that in all kind of the facets of their mm-hmm. life. But just in athletics, what traits have you seen, have you observed that kind of everyone has? And then after doing this book and really probably getting to know Kent more sorry about talking about you in front of you but that's just the way it is <laughs> he, he quotes me in my own book yeah <laughs> that that is unique because mm-hmm. i i do think kent has 
a few things that are different mm -hmm. than sort of some other people that have won that much. I think the probably the biggest common denominator I've noticed is this just hyper focus, this ability to meld mind and body together, where a lot of times with the good athletes who are able to win occasionally, they'll find those moments and get into that flow state, but they can't sustain it. Mm -hmm. Whereas you see the great champions, the Tigers, the Roger Federer, Serena Williams, Lionel Messi, Kent Steffes, they're able to have this level of hyper focus. And it's not just in Manhattan Beach Opens or the Olympic Games. It's Monday morning practice. It's Tuesday at five in the morning when you have to go to the track or weight room or wherever you're going. They just have this intense level of focus. And it was actually, it was really enlightening talking to Kent when he was talking about the winning mindset. And I thought, I don't think I have that as an athlete, but I think I do have that as, as a writer where I can just lose track of time for five or six hours at a time. Mm -hmm. And I can come out and it's like, oh, it's four in the afternoon. But that's what all the great champions in athletics that I've noticed have. Can expand on that when you said, you know, this this mindset when you, you know when you talk about that. Yeah, and so like you said, you you when you study or look at you know famous athletes or even coaches or even from my own experience, because not only took my own experience, but since then I've actually read a bunch of stuff and I've read a bunch of psychological stuff. I've read a bunch of autobiographies, and you see these common patterns that emerge. And what it comes down to is a mindset, and let's call it the winning mindset. So the first thing you would notice when you talk about champion athletes is their goals to win, right? Now that might be sort of like obvious, but it's actually not. You'll get a lot of pushback from people if you just simply say the goal of sport is to win. So my goal in volleyball was to win. It was to win every game. It was to win every tournament. You know, the goal of a Michael Jordan is to win the basketball game. You know, the goal of a golfer who's mm -hmm. a championship golfer is to win the major tournaments. Uh, even when I wrote that back when I was writing these pieces on Facebook, people were like, well, that, that's not true. It should be about this. It should be about that. What, well, <laughs> it's, 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 these it's, are people it, who didn't play sports, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I'm, I'm kidding, but it's, you know, listen, of course you hope you get these other things. And, and we'll talk about that. This, these sort of skill sets that propel you through the rest of your life. But I will say this, it is interesting because it is it is a, still a unique athlete, even within the best of the best, that it's like, oh, no, I have one single goal, and it's to win. Yeah. That's still just as – that's still a special group within the group. Of course, because what you find when you look at athletes is not everybody who plays sports wants to win. Not everyone is interested in that. You find people that – play sports because they like to play sports. It's fun. It's something good you can do. You can make money at it. Mm -hmm. You know, the minimum league salary in the NBA is a million dollars. And if you think every single player there wants to win the NBA championship, uh, there's news for you. It's not true. And not only have I experienced that in my life, I know I've played with players who don't want to win. It's Cleveland. They don't care. I've played with players who've taken bribes to lose. Okay, mm -hmm. I've taken players who are kind of at the end of their careers and I'm like, I got nothing else to do, so I might as well hang on. You know, I've read stories about the New York Yankees of the 90s with the Joe Torre years and the Derek Jeter years where the players obviously were trying to milk their end of their careers for large dollars. Mm. Uh, I've heard of uh, professional you know, baseball player pitchers who look at their schedule, see a great team they're going to play and just say they're hurt so because they don't want to ruin their stats. Do you think you would have played it's so funny so you you won a ton travis already said mm -hmm. that and it's hard to have that mindset it takes a lot of energy 
it's I it's exhausting. It is to be like that. So I'm curious if you would you have played and you know won a gold medal and done all that if early on you weren't winning already? Would you have? Would you? Because you had other things. You're bright. Um, you've made a you know whole other career certainly much sooner than you needed to. If you weren't winning early, do you think you would have stayed or you would have been like, I'm out because I'm not winning? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Okay. This is where the sort of the winning mindset, talking about winning and the psychology of it, I find fascinating. It's that the problem isn't so much that, hey, just adopt the winning mindset, go out there and say, I'm going to win. There's a problem in that when you lose, it's actually psychologically damaging to you. It actually damages you on a physiological level. We have studies on that, mm -hmm. right? So when people compete against each other, the winner feels better, gets high. The loser actually has damage, right? So as human beings, we have to reframe that experience. We have to think of another way to approach it so that we don't incur that damage for, you know, the, and have it affect us, right? So, um, that is, the, so for example. But do you think it impacts, like, so let's say you and Travis are playing together, mm -hmm. your team. He stated clearly already something. You play for some weird reason you lose. Do you think it hurts you and damages you more than Travis because you do say, I'm here to win? We do know it does, okay? We mm -hmm. actually know it does. And the problem is, is that sports are specifically designed to do that. Sports are specifically designed to put you into an area where you are threatened, where there is fear, where there is, you know, you might choke, you might uh, uh, fail, okay? That's why, that's what they're designed to do. So if you look at combat sports, uh, the sports are specifically created to hurt you, right. to damage you. Uh, collision sports as well. Uh, sports such as distance running or other sorts of sports are meant to ex physically exhaust you. It's meant to push you past your pain tolerances. And so when you start to look at these things, you can wonder why people don't necessarily adopt the winning mindset. It's not easy. It's, it hurts. It's painful and it's damaging. Yeah. So again, you need to reframe your experience. So one of the things we talk about in our book uh, is an experience I had when I was a kid. So I was sitting around State Beach. So I grew up here in Pacific Palisades, just sort of south of where we are in Malibu, a little bit north of Santa Monica. And the beach I played at was right there. And the pros would play there. Sinjin would play there. Randy Stokos would play there. And I was a kid in high school. Mm -hmm. And we used to sit at the side of the court and watch them because we were fascinated because we wanted to be pro beach volleyball players too. And here were the stars of the sport. And at the end of the day, one day, uh, Sinjin, who always wanted to play an extra game, the sun's setting, it's a beautiful summer day, you know, eight o'clock at night, and uh, no one would play with him but John Hanley. So he looks at me mm -hmm. and my friend, my high school friend, says, hey, you kids want to play? It's like, you want to play basketball against Michael Jordan? You want to hit golf balls with Tiger Woods? You're like, <laughs> of course I want to play. So we get out there oh, yeah. and we are so fired up. We are so excited. You're not scared? We won. We won. They beat us 15-2. I know. You see, they I beat mean, us 15-2 and read. we won the game. We got two points off the number. How'd you get two points off them? Oh, I can't even remember that. You serve Hanley. So Do you serve Hanley? No, just kidding. Because <laughs> he's so sweet, right? You're like, sure, the sweet guys. Yeah, no. But yeah, we won the game. We won 15-2 to and a loss. So again, that's what I'm talking about in terms of winning mindset and, mm. and how to reframe your experience in order to sort of move forward. When you first start a tour, I was a kid. I was uh, 18 years old. I was 19 years old. You're not going to win the tournament. But let me tell you one thing I had. This is something interesting. I, I would never forget this. There wasn't a tournament I played in. Even when I was a kid, I didn't think I would win. 
Okay. Now I didn't think I could beat all the top players in a row, but I said to myself, you know what, if this happens and that happens and when the top player sort of, you know, uh, loses and the bracket opens up, you never know, right? You never know. And so I went into that with that mindset. So knowing that the probability is low with the expectation that I was always going to win, knowing that it's going to take time to go up the ladder. Because first of all, when you enter a sport like beach volleyball or other ones, you can't win because you don't have points. You don't Mm -hmm. have the right ranking. So winning for you could be to continually march up the ranking. Winning could be continually to get a better partner. So that then ameliorates the damage that can occur and could build up from somebody from from the constant competition. That's an interesting point. I think it's important. Actually, this morning I had a coach here who coaches a kid from the Celtics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they obviously they lost this year. But if you look at how much better they did overall, Mm -hmm. it's like so within a very disappointing loss, they still have to have the conversation of Oh, but, and look at how much we've improved. So it is, it is a a beautiful thing. You talk about your dad in uh, Kings of Summer where he was, correct me if I'm wrong, you said interested in physics and athletics. Is that right? Okay. Physics and running, but yeah. Okay. (laughs) And, and so, um, is this, are you born with this mentality or did, was there, was there also something in your environment that helped you get to this place? I mean, the technical answer is we don't really know, and it's been studied very hard and very wide. So certainly there's a genetic component to certain sports. Mm -hmm. So if you're five foot six, your odds of being the NBA are low. But if you're five foot six, you can find a sport in which you can excel. No, I mean the attitude. I don't even mean picking a sport. Do you think that you... No, that is completely learnable. You do? Easily, simply. It's not. It's just a switch you turn on and off. Interesting. Travis, Travis, Travis is so. so Just the tra- switch, tra- tra- yeah, Coach Beal, we tra- interviewed Coach Beal. He asked. He told you what you needed to do. It's in a, no, I, I'm no, I'm. It just makes me think about it because I've thought obviously a lot about sport and what it is for different people and what it means. Like for me, it was a way out. It was a way to have a better life. It was a way to go to college and then continue and be part of something. Like I always say, Carrie Walsh had the mentality like you, which is. I expect to win. I'm here to win. If I don't win, it's my fault. And, you know, it's the way it is. It's very different, different types of sort of experiences. And so when you hear this, you have, because you're active still, do mm-hmm. you think, oh man, maybe I don't, I'm not cut out for this a in a certain of, way? Sometimes. Yeah. But when he was talking about the sort of the reframing, what winning looks like for different people. Mm-hmm. So I've only been playing beach volleyball for six years. Right. You're late to and the- Right. And so- when I go and play against uh, a Came Shock and Theo Bruner or a Triborn and, and Trevor Crabb, and I go to three sets with them, like, well, I'm kind of holding my own. In my mind, that is a win in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So the better I play, sort of like the Celtics, where they didn't win, but they vastly improved from where they were a year ago. Mm-hmm. And what's fun for me is that because I'm still so new as a player and that I'm still making these pretty big strides because, because I can, I still have so much to learn. And so it is that reframe of what winning looks like to you as an individual. But Kent, he was at such an elite level at such a young, young age yeah. where we're winning. I mean, you read the book when they won like 15-6 in the high school championship. Mm-hmm. He goes, yeah, when the best player was out, I knew that we were, we were just going to prom right after. <laughs> you know, and, and he, so he's known that he was going to be very good at the sport for a very long time. Mm. Um, whereas for me, it's still such a novel Discovery, concept. Discovery, yeah. yeah. 
And so it's a little bit different. And we talk about that. Laird and I talk this about this a lot where we're, so he goes to State Beach. There's things that are more intuitive when you're younger and it gets kind of baked into you as an athlete versus learning a little older where you're sort of analyzing things where when you go to do certain things, you don't even realize it's, into, Misty May is another great example growing up very young. It's like, there's certain things that you do because of course that's what you do. Mm -hmm. That's part of what the game is and the rhythm of the game that you already just know versus coming in late to a game and having to be like, oh, well, they're taking the line I should see. And then I'll try to hit a cutty over here because I see them on their right foot or whatever, where you're just like, I know what's happening. So I think there's so many other nuances. What I'm curious is if you can recall a time when you were competing and let's say, you know, at a very high level where you had a loss that you didn't expect, what type of reframing did you do so that you, it didn't kick your ass? It didn't punish you because you had to, like you're in a big tournament or what have you. Well, I think it was the 1991 World Championships mm -hmm. in Rio de Janeiro. And I was playing with Tim Hovland against the number one team in the world, St. John Smith and Randy Soklas. And we were winning. <laughs> it was two out of three. And we were winning the first game and lost. And we were winning the second game and got lost. And uh, it was devastating. It was devastating because I'd never played harder in my life. I'd never played better than my, in my life. And I didn't win. And I thought to myself, if I play the best I can play, can't win, then what's the deal? What's the point? Yeah. What's the point? Mm. So my reframing was to cry uncontrollably on the side. <laughs> no, no, I like that, though. Of course. I was very sad. And uh, we could talk about that. And what about Hovland? Did he get all, was he, oh, I would have loved to see that gasket. <laughs> you should see him a couple nights <laughs> oh before us. I didn't want to think about getting pissed at that. No, he was fine. He was fine. He um, he had been there a long time. He had he had won world championships sure. and he had won Manhattan beaches and he had won the big tournaments. He was called the big game hunter for a reason. Yeah, no, he's, so. he's scary. So that, see, that's what I mean. I, th I think it's important for people to hear that because behind so much of all of your success is that ability to go, oh, okay. And and sometimes we think, oh, a guy like that will be like, well, I'm younger than everybody. I'll have my time. Or sometimes you just have to cry. Sometimes you just have to cry. Like, un yeah, uncontrollably. But then, you know, you pick yourself up and you uh, go back home and you say, what do I need to do to get better? And I need to get stronger and I need to get faster and I need to uh, watch more tape. And finally, after doing all that, I was able to crack the nut. We mm -hmm. were the ones who took down Sinjin Randy from the top spot. You know, you got to you gotta knock the number one players off. Yeah. And that's what we did. And it's not easy. Yeah, because I always felt like, especially with side-out volleyball, Sinjin had this attitude. You could feel it. I will just stand out here longer than everybody. Yeah. And that, it's an interesting thing when side-out used to, volleyball would be guys, you could see them and they just go, I don't even care anymore. I just want to get out of here. And guys like Sinjin who just be like, I'll just stand out here all day long. And you think, oh, my God, that is like torture. And that was, I think, one of the biggest differentiators between the elites from that old school era yep. and between the, the great players and the good players. And that's sort of that winning mindset where a lot of guys, and you could see it with Hovland. He said the funniest quote, he goes, you might beat us once. Because you're not going to beat us twice. He goes, we worked harder than you, and we knew it. And yeah. we could stay out there all day long. All day long. And that was the differentiator is that the, the good players – we're stoked to get fifth place. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have Hovland and Sinjin and Dodd and Randy and Kent and Karch, and they could just stay out there all day long. And not only could they, they wanted to. Mm -hmm. They wanted the longer games because they knew the longer it went out, the more that the other team would just wilt. You could see that they just outworked people. So there, yeah, because there is a, actually in in the book, uh, in the 
at the Olympics where it's, no, you're not going to, you will not ace Karch. Like you're just, he's right. will not be ace. That was just his mindset. It was just, he said it was a skill to just get the ball off the floor. And that court was huge back then. It was enormous. Huge. I've, I've <laughs> sometimes on 16th street in Hermosa, yeah. they, they leave the courts on big court. Yeah. And so we'll mess around two on two on big court. Mm -hmm. And I look at it, I'm like, I don't know how they ever passed a ball. Yeah. Especially because they were bombing jump serves. And then you have Karch's laying out, getting just a knuckle on it. It's a perfect pass. And you could yeah. see them sort of kind of bear down and, and grit up when you guys were down in the Olympics, 12-8. It's yeah. like this, that was a serious problem. So for people listening who don't know that, you know, through time and for television and for other reasons, they they implemented changes in volleyball to speed up play and make sure people like points. They're like, what just happened? It went back and forth and back and forth and nobody got a point. So we switched to, you know, rally scoring and it became more of a big man's game by shortening the court. You have to hit the ball. So there were some things in, in this type of volleyball. And it is interesting how you go through all old sports, like hockey, for example. And it's like, yeah, we played without helmets and like, and it's true. There is sometimes a grittiness. And I will say, you know, I, I started at that, in that part of the game where there was definitely in, in men's and women's volleyball, like Nina and certain players who it's like the kind of the grittiness. Um, and even before your time, Kent, I mean, no block. You can't penetrate over the net. That rule cracks me up. <laughs> so it's like you have guys that were, what was it, Gary Hooper or guys like that who it's like, or Mengus, or it's like hit it as hard as you want. And I'm, my job actually is to take it. Yeah. And so it's interesting how these little things come into play where it was part of the game baked in. And um, Kent, you, you know, playing with Karch, Karch often felt like a robotic. And mm. you, you had a little bit of that. Like I, I can say from looking from the outside, you, you have a, you had a sort of an aloofness, like you didn't really fully know what you're, what you were experiencing. And certainly Karch, if he ever made an error, you thought, oh, he won't make that error. Like there won't be another, there won't be two errors in a row. Like there's certain athletes, you watch them. What are, what are the things that you uh, took away and you learned uh, from playing with Karch Karai? Again, like one of the, best things about playing with Karch was that mindset that he had. Again, he wanted to win. Um, you want to be, if you want to win, it's great to be playing with people that want to win too. And that's the start. And he was obviously a hard worker and he was very intense. Um, but he also knew uh, really well the technical aspects of the game. So, um, you know, he knew the angles to hit, the places to put it, how to how to block. There's really only three things you need to know to be the number one player in beach volleyball. Just three, huh? This just three. Are you and, listening? And no, matter how, no matter how many volleyball games you watch, nobody ever does it but the good ones. <laughs> Isn't that funny, right? Forever <laughs> truth. It, it is. And, uh, you know, I, I, I even told the Travis, like, oh, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then he argued with me on the third one. Uh, <laughs> I'm over three guys. He's like, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, but within, within, again, like when you start really, really getting down to it, you have to, you have to put a tent pole somewhere and, and get to the basics of any sport anywhere. All right. So, like, let's take a look at an NBA game. At the end of the game, with time running down, and the, there's your team's down by one, who's taking the shot? Well, Michael Jordan's taking the shot. Steph Curry's taking the shot. Well, I know it, you know it, the other team knows it, but somehow he's able to make the shot. He's able to get above everybody, get away, get free, get the ball with five guys chasing him, and make the shot. Mm -hmm. Well, how does he do that? 
Well, it's because he's doing something that everyone else in the entire building isn't doing. And so when you play with someone like Karch, you realize that. And so there are three things that most people do not do in, uh, in professional volleyball, except for Todd Rogers, the Volley Vikings. They do them and they win. Is he going to tell us what they are, or is it a secret? I don't know. He likes to kind of dangle oh, the carrot. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's a secret. I'm like, it's and there's just one secret to the universe. Anyway, it's not a secret, but like, anyway, all right. No. So, the, so the first thing is, if you, it, you when you hit the ball, you have to see the ball, the blocker, and the defensive player. Okay. If you don't see that, you're just guessing. And if you're guessing, you're not going to get the point. And if you could see the blocker and the defensive player, you just hit it where they aren't. Back again, the court was huge in our day. It was twenty five percent larger than than it is now. But even still, the things that you hit it where they're not. Okay, if they're here, you hit it over here, and if they're here, you hit it over here. It's a simple game, and the only way you can do that is if you can see. Most people are looking up when they're the swinging ball. at the ball because they have problems in the sand. So then, right, you work back from all these things. Right. Now so I, then it's getting your feet to the ball and putting yourself in position so that you can see all those three things. Feet to the ball, uh, how to jump out of the sand. You know, you want a forward jump. Most people think they have to upward jump. So again, you you begin to start working back, but you got to start somewhere. But it's still, when I when I look, I, I go to him. I go, Are you looking at the sky? Or are you looking at the block? He's like, Yeah, mostly at the sky. <laughs> what like, if you have a really giant block? I'm just curious. Now I'm curious. Yeah. What if you have a giant block? Uh, let's say who would be like Whitmarsh? I'm trying to think of like a really big guy you'd have to play against. Hmm? In, is well, it Witty? Phil, Phil Dahlhauser now. No, not now. Oh, for for his time. Like trying to think. Who would be like a really like kind of pain in the butt block that you had to deal with? Yeah, Mike Whitmarsh. Okay. He was by far the best blocker because he was uh, really yeah, he athletic. He was meant to be tall. a basketball player. Let's face <laughs> it. Enormously. I don't know what was he doing on the beach anyway. <laughs> so let's say um, it's not a perfect pass and not a perfect set, but it's, it's all within range, right? It's all workable like how you do. Now, but now you've got to deal with a very big block and maybe you have one shot that's more comfortable statistically for you than another in that moment what do you do you adapt do you adjust what do you do do you go i'm going to do this shot that's more comfortable for me i'm going to challenge the block or i'm still just going even though he's pushing me like he's pushing me not to hit it just where they're not like how do you manage that in that moment you're in trouble <laughs> Okay. Okay. All right, you're in trouble. No, fair. And there okay. you go. Fair. And um, the point is, is that you need to do that less and you need to do it correct more. Yeah. And that's how you get it done. Mm. It's, uh, when they talk about these epic battles we used to have is because it was, it's, it's when, when you're at those levels and you're both playing that. So Sinjin's doing the same thing I'm doing. Sure. He's seeing the court and everything and he's hitting where I ain't. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, who's going to make the mistake? Who's going to make the bad pass? Who's going to not focus? Who's going to not be all in? It's, it's a long game, an hour and a half game, and you can't. You're going to drift. You're going to think about it. You're going to get tired. You're thirsty. A hundred things happen to you, and next thing you know, your foot's out of position, and now you can't see, and now you're in trouble. Sure, we had shots. We had we had go-to. We had things we tried to do to ameliorate that situation, but mm -hmm. you are dead. You don't win. Okay, so you're you're because this is this goes across all sports. You're tired. You're it's long. You have you know worthy opponents. Um, what are your tricks? Are you how do you recenter and get back to that baseline? Back back to that baseline. And and you you know were you doing this as a young young athlete or is this stuff that you you learned? Well, first of all, they trained it into us. They beat it into us. We're still kind of shaking mm -hmm. from it. You can't, you can't coach kids like that anymore. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you sort of wake up shaking. <laughs> oh, he used to yell at us. He used to call us really mad, bad names. You mm -hmm. know, they used to say, you suck. God, yeah. 
dang it, Stephus, what are you doing? Get out of there. And that's in front of your family and your friends and your girlfriend. And you're like, oh, you're hanging your head. But when you're you in suck. practice at State Beach mm-hmm. and it's you and Karch. Yeah. You, and maybe you have somebody who's an outside set of eyes. You have to generate all of this information between the two of you mostly. I would, I think. In what, in what sense? Just as far as like, hey, how we're correcting, how we're reloading. At that moment now, you're, there's something where it's you, even though beach volleyball is two players, there's something also while I, I always felt like doubles had a sense of first you were singular athletes and then you were coming together. Sure. So what skills did you develop to get yourself like, oh, okay, I'm, this is going to be a long one. Um, and this guy yeah. is, I'm going to be, I'm working today. Like yeah. I'm really working. Yeah, yeah. Where do you, do you, where do you get, is it a well inside of you that comes from practice and doing all the right things a million times when you start to feel a little anxious or scared of like, oh, I might not quote win. Where do you go to get that baseline? Well, the first thing you, you realize if you look into this is those things you said, fear, anxiety, even being um, tired are false. They don't actually exist. They're not real. Okay, the moment that you realize that, then you, then you can begin to start working on the issue. All right? So, um, you know, your body's in a, I, I don't know how we want to go with this, but uh, if, if, you, if you look at yourself in terms of parts as opposed to a whole, that's the way I cracked it. it. It made a lot more sense to me. Um, so we look at our brains. It's, it's, it's got a whole bunch of different parts. We have our emotions. It has a whole other bunch of different parts. Well, if you think you're a singular person, I am Kent. I exist behind the eyes in the brain somewhere. You're going to make a mistake because there are other parts of you. Some are working with you and some are working against you. All right, you took anxiety for a while. What is anxiety? All right, it exists mm-hmm. with us. It exists with everybody. Everybody has anxiety. Why do some people able to manage it better than others? Well, anxiety is your body's motivational tool. It's to kick you in the butt to get you to do something. So the question when you get anxiety is, what is your body telling you it wants you to do? Now, if you think you can control that, it's probably just as stubborn as you are, right? And it's going to have its way with you if you don't have a conversation with it. It mm-hmm. kind of sounds strange when you say that. No. But that's the way I came about. That's the way. That, that's what worked for me. All right, so something's going on in me. I'm tired, right? What's going on? Why are you doing this? Because I know I'm not tired. Fatigue is an emotion. It's a way of your body trying to stop you, to bring you back from a point in which uh, – it's trying to protect you. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Like whatever you're experiencing is uncomfortable and you're trying to use some biological trigger to be like, I'll get myself out of this. I'm tired. I'm fatigued. Well, you're in a 100 degree environment in Brazil and it's yeah. sweaty and people are throwing things at you <laughs> and you've been working out for an hour and a half. Your body's telling you, you got to get out of here because you're going to yeah, die if yeah. this keeps up for a day. Like your body, of course yeah. you want to. Yeah. It, it, it makes you're, sense. Your right? body's smart. Your body's really like, Kent, we're going to die if we, this continues. I said, I know. Well, yeah. I, I'm going to, you know. Uh, I'll give you a great example because this yeah. is not out of the elite. This is for every day and everybody yeah. can sort of uh, relate to it. I was in a yoga class about five years ago. You so go to a yoga class? I love yoga. I've been doing it my you whole do? life. Absolutely. He needs yoga, yeah, Travis. <laughs> I love yoga. Look at Actually, we're through yoga, yoga company, Manduka, for a while. <laughs> Consulted with them. It was beautiful. Anyway, so this is so I'm 49, so I'm 54 now. So I was 49 in this yoga class, right? It was a hot eight <laughs> yoga class, right? Everybody knows that. The room's 107 degrees. You walk in, you sweat, your heart's pounding. And you're not even doing anything very active. You're just kind of doing poses, right? And about two-thirds of the way through, you have to do the camel pose, right? So, right, the, for those of you who don't know, you're sort of in an L shape, sitting on your knees, your shins are flat, your legs are flat. 
flat and you lean back and you grab your ankles. So every time I started to lean back, oh my God, I started to get dizzy and I started to feel nauseous and I was going to throw up and I was going to pass out. So I came out of it. Right. So the next time I did that, I started, went back and I did it again. And I started the same thing, nauseous, sick, it felt terrible. And I was hot and it was miserable and I hate hot yoga and it's hot. <laughs> so the next time I said to myself, okay, you know what, Kent? I don't care if I pass out. I don't care if I die. I'm going to do the camel pose. Like when we talk about the, the winning mindset, that is what we talk about. Now, do not do this at home. Where's the camera? I don't do care not, if I'm dying in this damn yoga class. Do I'm not doing the camel. do this at home. And I literally, so the next class, I went out in the corner in the back and I made sure no one was near me because I'm about to pass out and I'm going to fall on somebody. And I don't want to break some little you know yoga person in half. And I literally go back and I start going back in the camel pose. I said, that's it. I'm done. Have a nice life. And I started to go back and I'm nauseous, and I'm, I'm just about to pass out. And literally, as I told you, a light switch comes on and it all disappears. It completely disappears. I'm not nauseous. I don't feel like passing out. I feel perfectly at ease, perfectly awesome, perfectly energized. Okay. My body was trying to get me to stop doing something. I still could do it. I had reserves. There was a place you could go to. And that couldn't be a better example of what I'm talking mm -hmm. about in terms of, again, I don't recommend this because you might push yourself in certain areas. We were professional athletes. Greg, we, if you want to be a winner, okay, but if for well, the rest I, of you. I have the scars to prove it too, <laughs> all over as you push yourself. Yeah. So a lot of people think athletics is sort of natural. This is that we, we pushed ourselves. We push ourselves hard. We push ourselves in ways that aren't necessarily healthy, Yeah. that, that aren't necessarily good, right? So when Travis was talking about how he defines winning, that's fine, right? I mean, he's a writer and he's a player and I'm sure you have a good life and you have a good wife. <laughs> so that's winning to me. Like, I'm not trying to say that winning a beach volleyball no, term is the end all No, end we're, all. we're asking like, yeah, you yeah. because you've taken this path and that's why we're asking you. And also because you have a lot of thoughtful ideas around it. So if we're asking you, we're not saying, hey, it's better or worse. Yeah, but, but I'm very it's not few people yeah. have done it your way mm. and been at that sharp end of the stick and also are that thoughtful about it. There are a lot of people, we can see a lot of winners and sometimes they're not even connected to certain things they were either doing, you know. You know, it's like Michael Jordan and, and, and Tiger, it's like part of it's is like a ruthlessness and part of it's an identity and part of it's like, that's what you do. Like it's it's a mishmash, you you put an interesting spin on things. So Travis, when you're, you're where'd you get the idea for Kings of Summer for the book? Well, this, so this book actually, originally, I started working on a book when I moved to California in 2016. Okay. Because I had just started playing beach volleyball. And when I start something new, I just, as a reader, I just try to buy every book I can find on it. But there was nothing on beach volleyball. Mm -hmm. And so I figured I would write the book that I wanted to read. So I started working on this book, but I tried to, I tried to bite off way more than I could chew in, the, in that instance. So I started writing from the first tournament in 76 up until present day. Mm -hmm. And so I cobbled together enough information, sent it to this editor, uh, Command Z Editing, Ann Maynard, and she saved it. She's like, this is too much. This is two books. You have enough for the second half, which ended up becoming uh, my book, We Were Kings, um, just on the modern players. And then so I just sat on all this information and I knew that I was going to do something with it at some point, but there were still a lot of holes that needed to be filled. Mm -hmm. And then they started naturally getting filled on its own because we had Sinjin come on the podcast. We had Randy Stoklos come on the podcast and Dodd, he came on and all these guys. And I just looked at it and I said, well, they just answered like five chapters of questions that I had, mm. which left Kent as the one 
big thing. And during COVID was actually great for this book because I could I had the time to sit down and just tackle this book. And so I started going back, re talking to Tim Hovland and all the guys I need to ask follow-up questions with. And then so I sent ended up sending it to Kent after a couple of requests. And and so we ended up putting it together. So really in a way it's been in the works since 2016. Mm-hmm. And I only just revisited it about a year and a half, two years ago. I was like, okay, this could still be something. And now here we are and it is something. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a big undertaking. And, and you know, you're trying to get it as right as you can and honor the the history and everyone has their opinions and, yeah. you know, things like that. So it's, I really appreciate it. And, and it is a, a colorful story. Um, and I sort of, I, I also really appreciate um, when you get to learn about something in, during it, it, its expansive time, mm-hmm. you know, where its roots came in. I'm curious from both of your points of view, because I always wonder this. Beach volleyball was bigger in a certain way when Kent played than it is right now. Yeah, without a doubt. And okay, so I, when I played and entered, I've always been very practical. Like I understood how small the platform was. And I don't, you know, I, I wasn't relying on my family to provide for me. So I was like, okay, I train, I make, ten, I lose money playing beach volleyball and I spend 90% of my time doing it literally like all this other, you know, I called it like the, like the kind of smoke and mirror show I was doing on the side to pay my bills. Like, okay, blah, talk, TV, take pictures, make, you know, a hundred percent of my income from that, lose money playing volleyball. God forbid you want to take your team for dinner. Right. It's like, well, there it goes, you know, <laughs> uh, but I, but I also love the sport like in a, in a save your life kind of way, Mm -hmm. like what it gave me and the people and the discipline. And, um, but I always looked at it and thought, how can we help the sport grow? And I thought, okay. Um, for example, as dumb as it sounds, I used to be like, athletes need to take their glasses off. People need to see them so that I can connect with you. So when I cheer for you, you don't just look like another person with your shades on. The problem is with sometimes it felt like too much of a party environment, which was great for that moment, like in the Olympics. But then somehow people didn't understand how hard it was, what people were doing and how serious of an athlete that, you know, they were seeing and the amount of training and also what was on the line. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that was the other thing. In tennis, intuitively, you understand, okay, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, these things. Manhattan Beach has a vibe of that. Hermosa, because it says open at the end of it. How do we put something besides the Olympics now? How do we have something that feels like something's on the line here? Instead of it's like super tan, fit people diving around in the sand, girls in bikinis, guys in board shorts. I didn't, I never could figure out how to sort of say, how do we get it where people understand this is a serious thing? Is it because enough people don't do it? So they don't actually know how hard it is. I don't know. And now obviously girls and, and uh, you know, there's, it's in college, but I'm curious from your points of view, listen, it's never going to be a ball and stick sport. It's a lifestyle sport. Mm-hmm. It's like surfing and skateboarding and snowboarding. It is what it is. Like I always knew that, but I always thought there was a lane for it. Yeah. I've thought so much about that question and writing this book with Kent and talking to all these guys, it, it's, I have this theory now that beach volleyball, when it was at its height 
in the 90s, mm-hmm. which in a way, because in a way it's bigger now because more people are playing it globally. More countries, but prize money and opportunity was right. bigger. But financially, it's, it's yeah. a disaster now. It is, yeah. You attended beach volleyball matches. It was sort of a vote for what you stood for, where you weren't doing the corporate thing. You weren't doing the nine to five. It was sort of a proxy for what you stood for and like what your values were. And then now that it's become, now it's sort of this tweener mm. where it's trying to be a professional sport, but you can't button up beach volleyball, I, I feel like. It's, it's sort of lost its way. And you look at all the major sports, and we can play Ken's favorite game, sports roulette. You know, basketball had this identity. When Magic and the Showtime Lakers came around, yeah. where basketball became, it was so cool. And if you went to the forum, you, know, you were somebody. You were seeing Magic Johnson and the Lakers at the forum, and it, it meshed with hip-hop culture, and it, that was like its identity. That was its lane. And you look at all the major sports and they sort of have this identity to it. Beach volleyball is just kind of wandering lost. But also a lot of people play basketball. And a lot of people play basketball. So I think the hard part was, okay, Florida, California, you know, like some of these coastal places people play. But it's almost, you know, it's like we, we couldn't figure out how to kind of communicate it in a way where it felt important, but it still kept. The, the fun part of it, mm-hmm. right? Because that it has to be a blend of both. Otherwise, why are you watching? Right. And it's now, in terms of people playing uh, volleyball in general between indoor and beach is the number one most played sport for women in the United States. And it, Well, and it has been for a really long time. And it's, so I think, but beach is huge. When you go around the country now, mm-hmm. there are complexes at the grassroots level. Right. Beach is exploding. And the NCAA adopting it as a championship sport is a huge reason for that. And now my wife, Delaney, and I, we talk about it all the time that it's almost growing at the grassroots level faster than for its own good. Because now you have a lot of unqualified people who are in coaching positions because mm-hmm. they just need so many coaches. Yeah. So I think there's this, as Michael Gervais, he described the sort of mental health awareness sure. boom that we're seeing. He saw the swell coming. And the Kent were, must the love the mental in. health conversation. We're well, gonna, we'll get to that. Kent must be like, listen, it's not even real. <laughs> it's, it's a switch. Well, it's so easy. <laughs> one, two, three. Well, I want to get to that, but there, there's a combo. We only got one of the two or three things. I know. I, I'm well aware. We're going to get back <laughs> to <laughs> it. But I see this, so, this swell coming of this new generation of young beach volleyball players where you can go in Cincinnati and there's six complexes within an hour of beach facilities that mm-hmm. are packed. But how do we get that to come to the professional level is the yeah. question that we haven't found an answer to since about 96. Yeah. And how, and also how come the problem is Ken said it earlier, when you are going to be an athlete, you will have you, a coach needs to be tough on you for something to happen. You have to have some leader taking the group in a direction. And if coaches no longer can say, hey, that's not good enough, you have to do it again without some new, like, you know, without, you know, I mean, I that's a very interesting dynamic. How can you get pushed to the very limit of your abilities without having somebody behind you or in front of you going, here's the bar, let's figure out a strategy on how to get there, do it again. I, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated how athletes are are uh, like, oh, I you know, I I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable when you talk to me like that. Yeah, it's. Can you imagine Ken as a coach? It'd be amazing. He would be amazing. You'd be amazing. Well, actually, <laughs> I have to be honest. You would be gone. <laughs> I 
coach little girls softball. They love me. I'm, I'm not like this with them. Okay, he probably goes. He probably he probably medicates before he goes. He's like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. No, but the thing is, is I find I was thinking that when you were talking, I'm like, Kent would be an insane coach because it's like your your experience, your understanding, and the way you look at it is so unique. And it would be so incredible. I'm sure it's what partially what Karch is giving to the USA women's team right now is like, I'm sure girls are like, whoa, I never looked at it like that. When he talks, and I know when you interviewed him, you're like, I've never thought about it like that. Oh, like every time I talk to him, yeah. he says something, I'm like, wow, I should have I known that. Yeah, you're like, oh, I'm not even on the same. <laughs> I know. We're on the same court. I'm still on chapter one. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> so let, let's let's go back so I, the, the answer is we don't know the answer. There's three of us. We've all been involved indirectly in very different ways in the sport. And um, I also thought that it couldn't always be point for point game, that I needed to know more like the Olympics did. Those pre-produced packages on athletes, get me invested in the athlete. Let me know their story. Then show me points for points because enough people don't know or care about beach volleyball to do a full game point for point. Tell me something about like, oh, they come from a village and they live with their grandmother. Great. Now right. I'm in. I want that guy to win or her to win or whatever. Right. So I felt like we needed to tell the athlete stories a little bit more because unlike basketball or baseball, that it's like statistics and their rebounds and their numbers, I felt like the players, especially women, whether we like it or not, we kind of want to know about her. And so I, I thought we, you know, the sport could have maybe done a better job telling the story of who is playing. For sure. And I remember watching the Tokyo Olympics and Tri was playing. Mm -hmm. And Tri has one of the most remarkable stories I've ever seen from an athlete where he had to sit out two years for an autoimmune disease, never knew if he was going to be, be able to play beach volleyball again or really even like work out the same. Yeah. And he goes, comes back, qualifies for Tokyo, but him and Trevor, because of a country quota, weird technicality, didn't make it in, gets subbed in to play for Taylor Crab tested positive for COVID, leads the Olympics in hitting percentage, and no one knew. Yeah. No one outside the beach volleyball community had any idea what Tri had been through to get there. And I think you're right that we latch onto these stories and we cling to them. Yeah. And there wasn't wasn't a whole lot of that. And that's why I love doing the podcast with Tri, because we, we get to do it on a very small scale to tell these stories. But if it is a little bit bigger and we know it would be, you would get more people following. Well, yeah. I, th I think what, what you're getting at here, and this is just sort of globally sports and sports marketing, mm -hmm. is it's complexity, narrative, and communication, right? Certain sports are complex. Football is a very complex sport. Basketball is a very complex sport. You know, the javelin throw is not a very complex sport. So more complex sports are have more general interest mm -hmm. than what you call narrative, what you talk, these stories that you're talking about. There's a lot more stories in certain sports than there are in others. Like, you know, if you have a, a sport which is dominated by a few teams, well, how many stories are going to tell about them? You can't keep telling the same story over and over. So you told the try story, right? What are we doing for the next podcast, right? Like, whereas yeah. in football, you have 30 quarterbacks, 30 wide 30 defensive players, and things like that. Mm, and the, that's a great point. And the point is, is the sport is what the sport is, right? Like, you got to take it for what it is and try to maximize whatever you can out of it. It's like you talk about it. It's like it is, it is only going to be this big, and let's not – Fool ourselves. That's right. Or, 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 or one of the things, one of the geniuses of the Olympics is they take some of these sort of marginal, low complexity sports, elevate them to the highest thing in the world, and billions of people watch them once every four years. Yeah. Then again, how often do you need to assemble the top shot putters in the world to see who's the best? And right. and so those some and so you if you look at it just from a business perspective, that's what I see. Yeah. So what I see are a lot of people who think 
with sports roulette, we should be this or we should be that. And you're just not going to, but you can maximize what you have and do your best in there. And it was fine for me. I mean, we were, we were only doing maybe eight and a half, ten million dollars total. That's fine for a sport. Yeah. It, it was, it was good for a lot of us, a but it's not going to be a hundred million. Never. And I think there's a, you know, that I always say everything that you do, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to business, pretend nobody cares or likes yeah. it. And that's a good place to start from because we get so fired up emotional and like, this is amazing. It's like, it is. And nobody yeah. cares. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> I think if we approach it that way, then we have a chance to really tell the story. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I I did some research. And what I love about them is, so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law. And Ritual really knows how important women are. Obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for, by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important, levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work? And is it going to be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They, they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time and energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable. Your body can absorb it. It'll know what to do. And it's really gentle on your on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Ritual's multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on the nice little finished touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, that's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby to get 25% off your first month. All right, so let's go back to the other two things that have to happen. Oh, God. Okay, so the first one is you really need to see where you're hitting the ball. That helps. It's like, Amazing. It's like seeing where you're driving. <laughs> the second one is um, you have to be in the right position on the court. Pretty much everybody's out of position. Yeah. All right, so they're always running here when they should be. The ball's going this way, and they're running that way, and they're just <laughs> they're, they're too far out. If you look at, like, Todd Rogers is really good. If anyone wants to study, you should study him. He's always in the right position on the court. And he's a gold medalist. Yeah. And he was one of the top players. The Volley Vikings are in the right position all the time. And when you see people that don't do well, they're all over the place. So Okay, that's very – okay, listen, listen. (laughs) I I just need to say that is a very straightforward, makes a lot of sense comment. That is very hard to do. Mm. So when you say you have to be in the right position, that means you need to understand everything that's going on 
to get yourself in the right position. Do you think or believe that all the great players, not only are they in the right position, but they have the instinct about where the right position is. Again, so we're going to start peeling off the onion. Yeah. So first we need to be in the right place, all right? And, and, and that's paramount. Um, here's a situation with volleyball, especially when we played it, was that if they can see you, you're not going to get the point. So the mentality was you're waiting for them to make a mistake. You're not trying to actually dig a ball or block a ball. That's wrong. You're trying to wait for them to make the mistake, then you block, then you dig. So that's the first thing. So you're in the right place where if they make a mistake, you'll make the play. Mm-hmm. Right? That's why those guys would sit out there all day long because I'm not going to make a mistake. I'm going to hit it all over the place. Right Now, when you start thinking like that, you begin to start anticipating where your opponent is going to do, what he's going to do. Look, if you want to know, like Michael Jordan long steps before he pulls up for the jumper. Sinjin Smith pitter-patter his feet before he hit line. So you begin to start anticipating where they're going, being in the position to be in the place where they make the mistake. Okay? So, you know, if, if, if somebody's going to stand up and hit a, hit a ball at me, I'm not going to dig it. Ever. Okay, I did. Wow, exciting. It makes the highlight film. But that's not how you win games. Right. You don't win a sport that way. Mm-hmm. You don't do you, you know, you, you play the sport the way the sport's been designed to play. So can you emotionally, because you are also playing this in a very systematic kind of odds kind of way, are you able, you know, it's like, an, you ever, I love it in tennis, like some guy just hits a smoke and serve and the other guy's like, yeah, great job. Like, are you able just to be like, oh, yep, that, there's nothing you can do. No, it's horrible. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think all these emotions? Okay. Well, like, I don't, I can't you, tell. He just says something. Like, okay. <laughs> like, I cried during the World Championship. It's, it's how you, like, you get anxiety, you get fear, you get scared. It's how you manage them yes, that okay. matters. Not that we don't get them. Right? It's not that we, athletes feel the same thing everybody else does. The difference is we manage them differently. We process them differently. We get back on track differently. Mm-hmm. We emotionally swap. So if we're feeling down, we're like, look, I'm feeling down. I got to swap into some positive energy and I got to ramp that up because mm-hmm. I need it now. I can be sad later on, right? So yeah. that's the only difference between other people. When we lose focus, which we do constantly, we recognize it earlier, we get back on track quicker. And, and that's you, the difference. You talk about in the book, um, in Kings of Summer, shift. Yes. So this would seem like the right time to talk about that. Uh, yeah. So in the, in, the, in the case of the book, there's, there's kind of two strategies when it comes to playing a sport is if I'm competing against you, and I know you're really good at something I, 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 or really bad at something. So you're strong here and you're weak here. Uh, a lot of times you want to go after the weakness. So if you're a tennis player, a lot of tennis players have weak backhands. They have strong forehands and people say, go to the weakness. Okay. That's a good strategy and, and you could win. But a better strategy is you go after their strength. You say, okay, you're good at that. Well, I'm going to beat you at what you're best at. Mm. That's how you psychologically yeah. can start breaking them down because sports isn't physical. It's this mindset. It's trying to break someone psychologically. That's how you do it. So you say, okay, you're a great hitter. You're the best hitter on the team. We're going to serve you because mm. we're going to beat you. Like, I'm not going to serve the weak hitter. I'm going to serve the best hitter. Yeah. You know, you're a good defensive player. I'm going to hit it at you. You're a good blocker. I'm going to hit it at you because I'm going to beat you that way. And so... Uh, the, the, the reason we need to shift in the Olympics was because Sinjin had been pimping Karch the whole game and was getting them pissed <laughs> off, right? So he's all just going crazy. You know, when Karch gets mad, he starts like the veins. Oh, yeah. Start it's scary. And he, just, he starts pounding himself in the head. He literally takes his fist yeah. and hits himself in the forehead. Have you ever seen that? It's tremendous. <laughs> Don't try that at home. And so, like, 
and, and Karch was like, I'm going to show you. I'm the best player. In the world. I'm going to come right at you. You know, you Carl thinks he can block. I'm Sinjiki. And finally, we had to. I had to settle down. We go. We're losing, and we're losing bad, and we're going to lose. Yeah. Right. We're down, and the strategy's not working. It's a great strategy. If it worked, we would have psychologically defeated him as well. Hoorah! But we're we're there to win. Get the 15 points. Yeah. We had to shift. We had to change strategy. We had to say, this is not working. And that can be difficult for athletes sometimes. We need to go start playing to their weaknesses now. Mm. All right. So the moment we did that shift and started moving away from the strength base to the weakness base. <laughs> Poor Carl. You picked on Carl. <laughs> yeah. You, you, yeah. You know, you go after the guy. So the moment we made that shift, and you can see it in the mm, game if yeah. you watch the video. It's He's, worth Carl it. stops getting blocked by Carl. I yeah. mean, if you keep getting, you keep, he kept trying to pound it through Carl's hands and Carl kept bouncing it off the ground for points. Not a good strategy. We need a shift, Karch. Was that hard? Was that hard? That was that hard for you to suggest that in that moment? Like, how do you, how do you, yeah. and you're 27 at the time? 20, yeah, 27. Okay, how do you go to Karch Karai? Uh, ESPN. Excuse me? ESPN, too. You have to use, like, you, can't you just have to, you, you can't? Go, no, what is it? But if you, you speak keep to him, you, you, oh, you got to like grunt and, a, <laughs> and look. <laughs> you're using sort of psychological tactics. You're like, so you're kind of, sh so I'm having to move over to the left a little bit, just kind of squeeze him, but not say anything because if you say anything, he just, you know, yeah. you, athletes can be tough. You no, I know. Like That's why I have them. to know because he's scares me just standing here like, let's have tea. <laughs> <laughs> It's hilarious. So, yeah, so you're kind of squeezing and squeezing. You're going, oh, okay, that's not working. You know, you're sort of like not looking at it. Are you moving him around on the set? Like, are you starting, like, if I push him out over here a little bit, are you doing any of that? Or it's just like... Well, there's some techniques you use if you learn. Like, all right, so the, yeah. the, the eye is attracted to movement. So when your opponent's serving, if you do something like this, yeah. they serve it to you. So we had to get him from serving Karch and over to serving me because, yeah. you know, he's, yeah. he's trying to pound. Because you sell your wits about you. At that point, I was not trying to hit a ball through a wall, <laughs> <laughs> and Karch was. And so finally he came oh, to me, and, you could, and finally he sort of like, as I kept pushing him over to the side a little more, he kind of got it finally, yeah. that he needs to sort of make a change. And he did, because okay. he's a champion, and he can shift, and he's shifted before, yeah. and he's won gold medals, and he really, really wanted to beat them yeah. uh, because they were mean to him, and yes. they said meany things against him, <laughs> and just like in the kids in the schoolyard, he said it first, and you know. Well, you stayed out of that. I always felt yeah. like you had this beautiful art of somehow – you were Karch's partner. It felt like it 100%, but somehow you were on your own little island, and it didn't feel like you really had a beef with anyone. Mm -hmm. So no. that I want to commend you because I was like, wow, that's fascinating, your whole way that you navigated that. Okay, what's the third thing? Everyone's block timings off. They don't realize they have to go late. They go too early. It's tragic, right? Right, Travis? Travis, how's your blocking? Are you early? Ken oh, my God, it. and he scrapes the ground. I don't know what he's doing. Well, I'm not big, Ken, so the, the game's gotten a little See bit bigger. See how they argue? Play. Keep going, no, keep on. So I got to be sneaky. So I got to – I can't – players now use their peripherals to see the big blocks. And when you mentioned, actually, when Kent was playing against Whitmarsh, yeah. I'm actually way more comfortable playing bigger blockers because they're so easy to see. Yeah, you see them. They're huge. And so yeah. what a lot of blockers will do, even though – Apparently, it's biomechanically wrong. Mm -hmm. They'll get so low to the ground, and so they're completely out of sight. So yeah. when Kent was saying you have to see the block, you have to see the defense and yeah. the ball. Well, the block, if he's that far down on the ground and the ball is that far up, you just you can't see them both. And, and Triborn is, is an expert What at would that. you do in that moment? Would you just hit it faster? Would you go get it faster? In which, what? Like if your blocker is deciding to go all the way down, because there is an opportunity then. Yeah, right. go early. That's what I mean. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you kill him. You kill that guy. I mean, you know I, I mean? yeah, it's interesting. Right, but he told me to go late, and I, I didn't say go early. No, his hand impressed. <laughs> well, again, the philosophy is you're not you're not trying to block the ball. You're trying to block the mistake. Yeah. So your timing is based on what the mm. person's going to do. And if they don't make a mistake, you lose. And that's the problem. And that's why even though I'm the winningest player ever, I haven't won more than half. Yeah. It's not easy. Well, and that's a control thing, too. That's staying mm-hmm. committed to the strategy, even if it, in the moment of the impulse, right? You're saying, no, I'm going to, this is what I'm doing. It's mm-hmm. hard. And by the way, what was my advice to you? Get a big party who blocks. Yeah. Become the defense. Yeah. You think of that block. You <laughs> he can see he, on he defense. says, you know, I'm too sure to block. Like, we'll get a big guy to block. <laughs> there, well, there you go. Right? There it's you easy. go. Yeah. There's a lot of blockers. Just a, that's there. a song. Well, <laughs> there, I think there's more blockers than there see, are defenders. I could be wrong. Yeah. So the, the, really quick then, I'd love to ask how you feel about this new indoor kind of swing blocking. I feel like that's so unusual. Have you seen that? You know, mm. this like swing, they're doing the whole indoors, like this later swing blocking. And I feel like low and fast seems more effective. But I, I what do I know? My, I'm not in the game anymore. My father-in-law hates the swing blocking. Okay. I was just curious. He, he coached with Alice Gates at UCLA. Yeah, sure. And he thinks swing blocking is just the worst thing he's yeah, ever seen. I've actually, a couple of my friends have broken their hands swing blocking and accidentally hitting their teammates. Can you explain to people listening, um, you know, it, let's say old school would be that you'd, you kind of travel with your hands sort of by your chest, shoulder, mm-hmm. and try to move quickly, especially if you're, you know, in indoor closing a block and then just penetrate and take the area that you commit. Swing blocking, you actually bring your arms and kind of, and you sort of do this like swing almost around. a corkscrew yeah. motion where you twist your body and then it gives you, you get extra hang time from it. And it's actually funny. One of the most iconic blocks of all time was the 2000 Olympic gold medal match. Mm-hmm. And Eric Fanoi Moana swing blocks and yeah. jets. Because that's Brazilian all he had player. to do. That's, that's, that's all he could do at that right. moment. And he, he blocks it. And I, I think a lot of people point to that as evidence that I see. swing blocking works. But you're sort of corkscrewing yourself around, jumping up and fading into the block, which mm-hmm. now you're just moving everywhere. And you're, in my mind, you're becoming a huge target for the hitter to hit because your hands are everywhere. Your body's going one way. And yeah. so I like the old school moving laterally, pressing straight over. It's, yeah. it's a much more stronger We'll see if it block. sticks around. I'm curious. Kent, when you, let's talk about how <laughs> literally a huge drop the mic. Thank you for my gold medal. <laughs> And that was awesome. I'm awesome. I win. I'm healthy. I'm strong. I'm young. Um, the sport is expanding. And you're like, okay, thanks. Yeah. Was Did you know you were going to do that? No, because we didn't know that the sport was going to go bankrupt, that I was going to go into the wilderness. It was, But it was obvious at the point when I left that uh, there wasn't really any tour that's going to mm-hmm. happen. You, know, you talked about a little bit earlier about what volleyball is now but versus what it was, and it can be what it was like that. We talked about a little bit about that. But uh, it's, I think for me, it's, it's a little bit what the players want. Because if the players don't, if the players want something, they should go out and try to achieve that. And if they don't, then who else is going to do it? So there's this sort of sense right now, in my opinion, that the beach volleyball players are like, who's going to pay us to play? Who's going to put on tournaments for mm. us? Rather than like, you know, if you had a law firm, you better go and get clients. You know, volleyball is not that big. Beach volleyball is not that big. It's big enough for me. I, I loved it. I had a great time. And so there was a conscious effort. They, they, there was players that didn't like 
the direction the sport was going. And, and, and I helped to grow the sport. Sinjin helped to grow the sport. All those guys, because we wanted to. We wanted to play in bigger tournaments. Yeah. We wanted to play for more prize money. We wanted to play on television. We wanted those things, and we tried. We went out and ha- got those. And then it just sort of, they decided that that's not what they wanted. And so it wasn't that, int- it wasn't that compelling to me. I mean, the guy who took over the sport said, we're going to de-emphasize the winning of the sport and focus oh, on I just killed it for him. The party. <laughs> Ken's like, what? <laughs> what else? <laughs> yeah, the party <laughs> part of the sport. Great. Yeah. I mean, no. there was some, like, like I said before, there are athletes that wished that. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't like how serious it would become. They felt bad. That Why? They, it was too scary? Too hard? They literally would say, like, it's too much pressure. So people Ooh. people feel these things. It was too much pressure. They liked it when it was fun. I go, well, you weren't making as much money. Yeah, but we liked it. So you can't you can't but judge people how they feel, right? That's if that's what they liked, that's what they liked. Yeah, but it's a professional sport. But not everybody in the professional sport is there to win. There again, we, we talked about. Yeah, that. no, other, I know. It's just a fascinating things. thing. It's like anyway. Well, okay. So were you heartbroken to leave? But all- nah, I don't think I was heartbroken. You know, I'd had a long career at that time. You know, bad, nobody thought back then that you could play till you're 40, 45. I mean, yeah. you, uh, bad, if I remember correctly, and I talked to Travis a lot about that, about sort of the thinking of sport back in the day. The volleyball wasn't even really a professional sport when I first started right. playing. And l- luckily, my first year on tour, there was a giant jump in the prize money. You never you never thought that was going to be your job. Yeah. You went, I was at school at the time, even when I was the number one player. So I was going to have a career and I got, I was going to be a certified financial player and I work in the financial markets. And I like playing volleyball too. But then it took off and that became my job, my career. And so, um, <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's, you could financial plan your own money for a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. right? Trusts and wills and the whole thing. Insurance, really exciting yeah. stuff, right? But, you know, then it sort of came to it. It sort of just came to an end. And you're like, okay, I'll just go on to do what yeah. I sort of planned to do. Look at tennis, like McEnroe, he, ret- he retired at 26. Yeah. Fats Wielander at 24. Guys retired. Now they don't. Why? There's a lot of money in the sports. Yeah. There's a lot of money, there's a lot of opportunities. And so people stay. Whereas they didn't, you know, um, Pat Hayden went to do a uh, private equity, Reardon Lewis and Hayden. He was quarterback of the Rams. He left to go to law school. Was I think he was a Rhodes Scholar too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Brady's still around, still going, 43. That was unheard of back then. Yeah. So. It makes sense. So in, in Kings of Summer, just for for people, you know, you're, you're, revi- you're sort of visiting the history and how we got here to the very first Olympics. And you go back and forth chapter to chapter. So I, I just want to. I want to bring that up about the book. And Ken, I just have a few more questions for you. Uh, business. What mm-hmm. what skills, um, I mean, obviously you, you're already a very analytical, thoughtful, uh, intelligent person who happened to be really good at beach volleyball. Was there anything you learned in sports that actually helped you in business? Oh, yeah. First of all, learning to work with people and to meet people and to be sort of fearless at uh, calling people, getting meetings. Absolutely. You know, um, hi, it's Ken Steffes, gold medalist. I just was wondering if I could work with you. That kind of call? Yeah. I was fearless. It really helped me. Well, you learn to be fearless. I'm, I'm teasing you. Yeah, I'm teasing. So, yeah, like, I'm happy to call anybody. And what happens? They're going to reject you. Are right? they? They some they a lot. You got rejected. Oh, I've been rejected. Trust me, it happens. I've lost skip volleyball matches too, and and tournaments. And yeah, my yeah. my hit rate is less than fifty percent. So if you do better than that in business, you're going to mm. do fine, right? So just that that's a good thing to do. Also, 
Um, what's great about sport is how intertwined it all is. You know, there's the, there's us athletes who are playing, there's the entire production crew, there's the sponsors, there's their needs, there's the television, there's the PR, there's, there's a lot that goes on in a sport that most people don't necessarily could see, or even athletes don't necessarily know that's going on, that it's kind of fascinating and it helps out. So, you know, you learn to put together, I, I, I was, I was 19 putting together sponsorship deals with a contract and I couldn't afford a lawyer. So I had to do it myself and I'm like, that, that doesn't look right. And then you get screwed over in your first contract and you, you learn, learn. <laughs> right? Then you learn what not to do in the next learn. contracts, right? <laughs> so, you know, asking for the sale, here's a perfect one. So I, I had a, I had a, I had a uh, sunglass sponsorship that was $40,000. Okay. And they came to me like, ah, we don't really like beach volleyball. We're going to offer you 35,000. So my agent goes, well, let me ask this other company what they'll do. And they're like, well, they'll pay you a hundred thousand. So I'm like, what? You're crazy, me. You, there's no such thing. And then finally, it was like two hundred thousand a year. And if they would have just offered me forty thousand, yeah. I would have taken the deal, and I would have missed out. Mm. So sometimes ask for the you know ask for the sale, ask for big numbers. Yeah. So I learned that too. Are there traits that didn't that don't transfer over? You know, we talk about this winning mentality in business as it becomes sort of winning for everybody the pursuit of excellence? Like, is there any traits that sort of like you go, oh, you know what? I developed that really, you know, strongly for playing in sports and competing, but I actually have to put that away oh, in yeah. business. Yeah, that would be my lack of empathy. <laughs> so, <laughs> stop laughing here. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, no, like you're really, you know, you got a goal, you're pushing for it. Also, when you, when, you, when you adopt a winning mindset and you have the confidence, which you must develop or actually turn on, uh, it throws people off. All right? It, it, it's, it's, tough on people they say they call you names or it's toxic it's just human beings are meant to work in social groups as an athlete you're attempting to go away from the social group yeah. and that on a, on a level that people wouldn't even be able to say it kind of pushes them away from you and yeah mm. so when you develop that too strongly that'll buy you that that is one of the things for sure whereas business it's more about you know groups you know, empathy talking to people you know va valuing them like you think i valued my part my players when i when we beat them they're yeah. opponents yeah so there's certain things that don't don't translate well at all that are hard still so hard I, i'll tell you as a female who played in sports i um that was always one of the things that was hard, harder because it's like you your goal is to win and somehow um you know like with women it's sort of like you don't want to almost hurt your their feelings too badly <laughs> yeah. no it's some weird thing that oh, you have yeah. to try to overcome and realize you're not a bad person because you want to beat somebody and i always thought ey was an interesting example because i feel like she has brothers or something that she didn't it, it didn't feel like carrie doesn't have it where misty just seemed like she was so cool and in the clouds that she didn't even it seemed like she didn't even hardly notice who was on the other side i used to say you could say to her hey this chick's six eight and she wants to eat you for dinner and she'd be like awesome what time is the match like it was just like didn't impact her and for the rest of females were with men i feel i feel like that comes easier. Oh God! And, you, and that's why you guys can also be like, "Hey, f you, f you. Let's have a beer yeah, after." Yeah. And we hold it for five years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like one time, she said to me in a match, and it's like, "Are you serious?" That was like ten years ago. Oh yeah, I have a daughter. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you. So you have a son and a daughter. Yeah, yeah. My daughter's going to be eighteen in like six days. Congratulations. Yeah, and my son's sixteen. But yeah, back to your point. So I've coached her, and girls. Oh my God, right, you must be soccer. a nightmare coach no, 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 in the no, best no. way. 
I say that with so much respect, but today. No, no, I've, I've actually written on this. I wrote like how to train your kid to be a professional athlete. And if you don't, <laughs> it, it, like it, 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 this is what you do. But everyone okay. else, everyone else, that's not what you do. So I could coach this way. Okay. I could coach rec ball, which I do. And I could, co if you wanted me to coach your child to be, yep. a, 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 you know, a winner, I could do that too. It's different. Mm -hmm. It's, it's totally different things. But to your point about girls and men, so like in soccer, yeah. like little girl soccer, eight, 10 year old, you know, girl kicks a ball and it hits a girl in the face. The whole game stops. Girls take a knee. And the girl who kicks it is like, Shh, oh, oh, oh. It's, it's the funniest thing to watch. Whereas in boys, same age, you kick a ball in a guy's face, kid's face, bleeding out of the nose. Yeah. The guys are like, he's down, he's down. Yeah. Send me the ball, send me the ball. <laughs> Hurry oh, up. Yeah, they're, they're light, they're light. It's, you're totally right. Yeah. You're totally right. So, yeah. Exactly. It's, a, it's an interesting. So talk to me about that as a parent because you do have two children and you, you're, you know, I have three daughters, so I've never raised, you know, raised them. I live with a male, but I don't, I've never had to be a parent to a male. I'd love to know um, if you, you did any different kind of nuanced communication with your children uh, in sport based on this. Oh yeah, yeah. No, we talk about it. like like uh, my son plays football and my daughter plays uh, softball. So nobody uh, played volleyball, huh? Uh, they're a little short. Actually, Connor could probably play, but uh, yeah. Well, she, Catherine, she, she gave an interview as well. Everyone asks me why I don't play volleyball, and I say, well, I'm five foot five. <laughs> right. So she plays softball. But did, did you? Because you have a very what you possess, and and Travis knows this certainly better than I do, is very unique, and it's and it's it's complex. And so um, I'm interested if your kids didn't sort of naturally pop into the world with it, um, was it important for them to have versions of this for themselves? Yes. No, we, we did it. We, you know, we, we worked with them in art. We worked with them in music. We worked with them in sports. We, education's always, always a thing. And we, we sort of want them to drift into an area that they uh, find interesting. And uh, I'm, you know, sort of like, come over here. This is really fun. It's sports. And it, I, I really did consciously uh, with my children want to make it fun. So mm -hmm. if you work with children and uh, first of all, if you want them to enjoy themselves and to continue on, you should make it fun for them. If you're not making it fun for them, they're not going to want to. So the most important thing about practice in our household was the going to pizza afterwards with the team. So we get all the girls together and they get to pizza and we'd have a good, and the parents would come. And so we wanted to generate that sort of feeling that that was a fun place. So your friends are there. It's fun. You like it. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you, you're trying to, you, you're trying like, you know, God, you're not swinging correctly. Right. You know, and the ball, come on. And then some other coach comes and gives the wrong swinging technique, and I got to go, but no. Yeah, but it's, but I, I always think it's hard if you reach the level that you've, that you did, and uh, you continue to do in your business because you pursue things in a certain way, um, you know, at a very high level, is like your kids, it's such an interesting adjustment when maybe your kids are doing it. Like, let's say Travis was your son. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like... He'd block correctly. <laughs> but, no, but also, okay, I'm going to throw one out. I'm going to throw... I'm going to ask you an idea about this because I think about this a lot because I live with somebody who is very, at the best of, mm -hmm. you know, very high level. It's a whole other thing, right? Is there is a price for that. Mm -hmm. And you said it earlier. Mm -hmm. So in a way, as a parent, like I always tell my girls, they like tennis. I'm not your coach. I'm your mom. 
right? Like I'm trying to talk about like the other stuff, the life stuff or whatever. I mean, I, I just didn't coach them. I wasn't a tennis player, but there's an interesting thing where I so much want to put my template on them. Like I, my youngest daughter gets straight A's in school and I'm like, yeah, that's okay. But she's not like as, and she's six one. And it's like, I'm like, oh man, if I had that body and I didn't hit balls, you know, but I have to let it be because I'm putting my stuff on her is as the parent, sometimes you go, well, would I rather have somebody who's the best of the best or somebody who's like emotionally pretty fluid? Let me look at him. Look at Travis. I mean, <laughs> he's, you know, it's like they have a level of like joy and, you know, other things. And it's an interesting thing where I go, well, maybe I, I don't know if my kid comes out and goes, hey, I want to be a winner. I want to be the best. I wouldn't get in the way. I'd facilitate. But mm -hmm. if I have a kid that sort of looks like Maybe they're a little more chill that way. Part of me is like, you might be happier in the long run. Because even I look at Laird and he's good, but he suffers for that kind of level of pursuit. Well, I think what you're asking is how hard should you push, push your children? Well, no, but right? I'm or saying no, or, or right? just for you and your experience. And now that we're talking about your kids, it's like you're handling the way you do it and and you know the toll that it can take. Mm -hmm. And so w the other thing for your kids is that's all I mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we have conversations that go along the lines of this. Well, you don't know anything about this, Dad. You were a beach volleyball player. So apparently it doesn't oh, translate well, yeah. to any other sport. Which is, of course, what <laughs> is I would that probably, hysterical? Oh, hilarious. my God. It, uh, which, of course, I would have probably said to my dad, right? <laughs> so chip and block, right? Yeah. And that's, your kids are kind of a reflection of you. So as much as you want to push them, if you are if you like that, they're going to push too because they're yeah. going to be put like that. And no, with my kids, it's uh, if, if that's – I don't know if you can push them so much. Again, you could guide them, you could direct them, you yeah. could encourage them. But to, to, to get into that mindset, to really push yourself, to go into a camel pose at 49 <laughs> thinking you're going to die, you might not want that for your children. <laughs> you might not want that yeah. for your children. But if they say, okay, right, yeah. you're, you're going to be supportive of them. Yeah. And I think because you accomplished, you don't have to live it through them. No, God, no. You know, so I think that that's always an interesting thing. So I, I'm just curious when you when you decided, hey, this game, it's it's just I'm going to move on. How did you did you did you have a period of time after was it you know a year whatever that you were unmotivated, you were sad, you know, because that's a pretty intense. Uh, structure. It's an intense identity. It's an intense uh, revenue stream. Like you had sort of all these things tied up in this and then you you split. And how did you kind of, if, there, if you were navigating any of that, did you have a system in place or did you just dive into something new? Yeah, I went straight to business school. That Stanford was it. University. Met some of the top, smartest, most competent business professionals on the planet. And, uh, you know, the academic staff at Stanford University you know, yeah. is tops in the world. They were phenomenal. And we got to meet with incredible business leaders, business people. So, yeah, loved it. Loved it. So yeah. it was really just having something really big that you could put your teeth into that kind of protected you from having a sort of a dip well a lot of what we talk about here in terms of mindset mm -hmm. let's call it killer attitude because that's what everyone likes it, it, huh. i believe in some called compartmentalization mm -hmm. right so you're compartmentalizing who you are to this specific situation which is sport that wasn't all that i was right so i had other things in my life that i also liked okay i wasn't an olympic gold medalist at reading but i like reading or you know like there's other things i, I like i like the financial markets i like business i, I like other things and so when this part 
ended. I just moved into other parts. Mm. If you're sort of, they call it well-rounded, but I, I don't know if I like that word because it assumes the other person isn't. But if you have, if you can find interest in your life, they'll just shift to that. The, the, the end of the day, all athletes retire. All right, I retired from beach volleyball, like you said, at 30. I retired from soccer at 10, at baseball at 12, at basketball at 18, and I'm still doing skiing. I haven't retired from that yet. I'm still riding my bike. I haven't retired from that yet. So if you go into a sport, even if you are going to be a champion, a gold medalist, a professional, you're going to need to find something to do for a big portion of your life, yeah. and you better start working on that early. That would be my advice. And so, yeah, I just moved in to the next thing. It's really good advice. Travis, what were you hoping people would get from this book besides just the delightful? I mean, it's a it's a really colorful and fun story. Um, you know, what were you hoping? Not many people know about the history, especially in my generation of players. Not many people know the the history of the sport and yeah. how big it was, but also why it was so big. And this current generation of athletes, and Kent sort of alluded to it, is that they want someone else to sort of get the money. We're like, well, we're good beach volleyball players. Why, why aren't we getting paid more? But mm-hmm. Kent's generation with Sinjin and Karch and Dodd, they boycotted the world championships yeah. and said, you guys aren't doing it for us. We're going to do it ourselves. Yeah. And no one's doing that. Not many anyway. Right. And I think to see why the sport was so big when it was as big as it was is super important for, and I hope my generation reads it and, and sees how hard Sinjin Smith worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, he helped build the AVP from the ground up. He yeah. did so much work and doesn't, no one really understands that, that the players built the sport and it wasn't the AVP, like the CEOs and them doing it for well, them. Well, they it, actually it had the to go in then against another whole organized group yeah. to say, hey, we have all the talent and we're bringing it over here. Mm-hmm. I think also it's that that example of a really beautiful, perfect storm where you have a lot of talented, strong-minded athletes in that moment who maybe at least had the opportunity in the right times to work together for the greater collective of the sport, even though they were competitors. And that is very unique. So there's also, it's a very beautiful moment in the sport that all that came together. Very. And I think, I think just all the stories too are just so cool. I love seeing Randy Stoklos. His dad wanted I mean, him to sweep the warehouse. Oh, Rudy, Rudy. right? Yeah. yeah Rudy Stoklos wanted his son to sweep the warehouse. Randy said, I'm actually pretty good at volleyball. Goes to UCLA, says college isn't for me. Goes to the national team, he's like, actually, indoor isn't for me either. Yeah, I'm going to make it on the beach. No one's ever done that before. And he's one of the best players of all time. And I think seeing stories like that, we, mm. we latch on the narratives. And we've talked about that a, a fair amount here. And there's so many fun narratives yeah. and cool narratives for people to latch on to. And, you know, I grew up in a pretty old school house. I think you guys would both love my dad. And we were yelled at as kids, you know, he was hard on us. And so I like seeing the stories of people who just worked so hard for what they got instead of asking someone else to hand it down. And I think you see that just over and over and over again throughout that book. Well, the book, congratulations. It's hard to do a book. People don't have any idea. It's very hard. (laughs) Kings of Summer. And so is the best way to get it online hopefully in August, even though it's already sold out? Can they pre-order now, though? They can. They can go on Amazon, yeah. And if I could make a completely unsolicited suggestion, um, if you can help him write another book (laughs) on all of these um, philosophies and concepts around 
pursuit. Um, I think it's really important Thank because you. it seems to come easy for you the way you see it. That's sort of practical, like, well, I mean, here it is. And, um, it isn't. So, and I think it would st be stuff that would transcend on all sports or if someone was even thinking about business or things like that. So, um, I'm just, thank you for coming to my house and I really appreciate it. it have I forgotten anything? Did you want to say anything before I close out the interview? Did I, is there something else that felt important that you wanted to share? Well, I just want to say, you know, Kent, he, he makes it sound simple and I think he, he knows that it's not that easy, but he worked so hard. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, he, he did it. And I think he he knows how hard it is for people to do it. But it is simple. You know, volleyball is a simple game where you just hit it where they're not. But he knows the work that he put in to get as good as he was and to know this is where they are. I'm going to hit it there. Yeah. And so that, that work, and we have talked about continuing working together because I really enjoyed it. And I know Kent did as well. So I think what you mentioned is, is probably on the way as well. No, I think it would be good. Yeah, and so I would say that it's, it's very simple. I would disagree with him. And you're right, writing is hard, but it's really simple for him, okay? So what uh, the most amazing thing is, I, 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 when I wrote things, it, it is so hard. It takes me forever. My brain hurts. I have to lie down, okay? Why, because you're trying to get it exactly right, precise? I don't know. I just, um, my, my point is, I'll send things to him, and he'll like, bop, 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 turn them around, send them right back to you. Like, how did you do that so fast? See, you know so, why? Because he's not a good blocker yet. He's not a good blocker yet, but he can write. <laughs> so it's easy to write a book when you have a great writer like Travis, yeah. who is easy for him. Okay. He even said it one day. We were over there like, well, that's how we trained us. We trained us to just write really fast. We have to, you have to pump out so many articles. Yeah. You don't do it in time. You get a bad grade. Yeah. And you know what else, too? I know probably Travis is in touch deeply with his emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you can write from an emotional sort of sense – a feeling of things, I think it makes it easier. When you're very tactical, I think it's harder. Mm. So you guys make a really good couple. Thank you. A good I'll team. Block. You can be a good team. Yeah, let him block. He'll take it. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Gab. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at gabbyreese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating, and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.